Welcome to the Genetics Podcast. I'm Patrick, the co-founder and CEO of Sano Genetics, and I'm really excited to be here today with Debbie Kennett, who is the first guest on the show that is a genetic genealogist. Um, if you don't know what that is, you're about to find out, but I'm really excited because I've followed Debbie on Twitter for a long time. I've read her blogs. And if you didn't know it, actually, probably the biggest driver of adoption of direct consumer genetic testing is genetic genealogy. And I'll let Debbie explain exactly what that is. It's great to have you on the podcast, Debbie. Thank you for inviting me. So just to get right into it, would you mind explaining what what genealogy is, what genetic genealogy is, and how you got into it in the first place? Okay, so genealogy is essentially the researching uh, the history of our families. So sometimes we draw a distinction between genealogy research and family history research. Genealogy tends to be focusing very much on the names and the dates of your ancestors, but most of us are actually family historians where we don't just look at the names and the dates, but we also like to um, paint a picture of our ancestors and find out about their lives and the social history. Um, So genetic genealogy actually combines um, the the tools of genealogy with the um, DNA tests. So we can use DNA testing as a way of um, testing hypotheses about, uh, say, relationships or for finding connections with different cousins from around the world and sometimes also it can show up surprises when people don't match with the cousins that they should be matching or they discover that they've got say um, half siblings they knew nothing about or we also do have cases where people test and they discover that their um, say their father is not their biological father it's as the databases are growing it's really uh, opening up a whole can of worms but also providing a very, very powerful tool for reuniting families and providing answers which people couldn't previously get from any other means. Yes, absolutely. And, and we'll, I think we'll go into some of those, um, you know, maybe unexpected uses when it comes to using databases to solve cold cases, criminal, find criminals in the U.S. and some of the implications of those. But also there's, there's the obvious, um, you know, g- implications of helping people find family members, learn more about themselves. So you were originally a, uh, a genealogist, not a genetic genealogist. What, what got you into it in the first place? And then when did you kind of start to look at genetics as an interesting tool? All right. So I started back in about 2001, 2002, researching my family tree. And then I ended up having a particular interest in my maiden name, which is a very rare surname, Cruz, spelled C-R-U-W-Y-S. And I became much more interested in that name than all the other names. And so that developed into what is known as a one name study. And that's where um, rather than just researching the surname within your own family, you research all the people who have that surname wherever they may be in the world. And that led me to joining the Guild of One Name Studies. And we had a number of members at that time who were starting Y chromosome DNA projects. And uh, at that time, we only had the Y chromosome DNA tests available um, so Y DNA testing is actually very, very useful in a surname project because the Y chromosome follows the all male line of inheritance. So normally the Y chromosome is passed on um, with the surname. Um, so if you test two people with the same surname, you can see if the results match and then you know that they share a common ancestor. Right. So your so your father's last name was Cruz. Yeah, um, right. Yes. Because- because you inherited your Y chromosome from from your father and then him from his father and and so on and so forth, you can you can sequence the Y chromosome and, and kind of paint a paint a line just along the male lineage and, and then you can use the mitochondria to do the same 
um, for for the kind of maternal lineage. Is that right? Yes, except of course I don't have a Y chromosome, so I had to take yeah. my father. Um, and right. my mit- mitochondrial DNA represents my mother mother's line, my mother, her mother, and so on. And I can also test my father's mitochondrial DNA, but that represents his mother and her and all her female ancestors. Why DNA testing? We we have to find a male relative with a surname of interest to take the DNA test on our behalf. So, how many other people do you know that that share the same surname or maiden name? Um, is it you said it's quite rare, but I suppose you've been able to find people over the years. There's probably only a couple of a hundred of us in the world, but right. um, what you tend to find with rare surnames is that they are generally a subset of a more common surname. So there are different spellings. So once you start right. spellings like C R U S E or C R U I S E, like Tom Cruise. And that starts to increase the pool of people uh, enormously. And there's another variant, Cruise, C-R-E-W-S, which is very, very common in, in America. So um, I've actually got a large number of American cruises in my um, DNA project at Family Tree DNA. Right. So were you one of the were you one of the early adopters of direct to consumer genetic testing? Was it quite clear to you when when the first companies started to offer this testing that there were going to be databases of people that were looking across the world for, um, you know, distant relatives or, or has that come as a surprise to, to you and others in the genealogy community? Um, well, with the, the, y, the Y chromosome DNA databases are still relatively small. There's um, something like 800,000 um, Y DNA results in the family tree DNA database. But I've been there right from the start with autosomal DNA testing, which is the one that is more useful for finding these connections with cousins. And that was introduced in 2009, first of all, by 23andMe, who introduced a feature called Relative Finder. And then in 2010, Family Tree DNA launched their Family Finder test. And certainly in the early days, um, I don't think we would have anticipated the databases getting as big as they have done. I mean, I can still remember 23andMe um, announcing that they were trying to get one million people in their database, which right. was unattainable in those early days. Yeah, people were laughing about it, right? Saying it was yeah. impossible to be that That's many right. people. But I think one of the things is that the tests were comparatively expensive. And I, I mean, I remember when I got my first um, family finder test and I tested both of my parents I think we uh, it was something like $200 for each of the tests so it was really only the you know the real keen hardcore genealogists who, who were buying these tests and just thinking and hoping that one day the databases will become large enough to be of some use. Right and that has been one of the maybe in retrospect expected but I think at the time maybe unexpected drivers of this industry, right? My understanding is that more than half of people who buy a 23andMe test uh, are primarily motivated by, um, you know, learning more about their ancestry or, or genealogy. Uh, is, is, that, is that the case or is that, is that kind of an urban legend? Um, it's difficult to get true figures on this. I mean, certainly um, when Family Tree DNA, sorry, when 23andMe expanded their database, they, they, they were not even able to offer their health test for some while. And they actually right. considerably in, in that period, and that was purely driven by sales of Ancestry tests. And Ancestry DNA, the largest company, um, they their focus is primarily on um, family history. But the thing that does seem to be 
to have been driving a lot of the sales is this desire to know who you are and where you're from and to get these pie charts with your comparisons of people from different parts of the world. And there was a, I don't know if you remember, a video from Mamondo a while back, um, which went viral, and that really helped to, to drive um, interest in the ancestry DNA test in particular. How much um, can you say about the accuracy of these pie charts? Because you hear, I mean, everyone likes to um, criticize them. And, and I think on, you know, when, when it gets down to small percentages, it seems like sometimes it isn't accurate. But from what I've seen over the last 10 years, especially the the mainstream tests like Ancestry or, or MyHeritage or others are, are getting actually quite good at picking out um, at least kind of country or continent level ancestry, but um, I don't, what, what's your what's your view on it? Is it um, is that part kind of quite solid and ironclad? Um, I think it's improving all the time. The science behind, uh, I mean, there is good science behind the tests, um, but a lot of it was drawn originally from science which was looking at populations and not at individuals. But right. companies have actually done their own research and Ancestry actually published a landmark paper a couple of years ago, which um, was the um, impetus behind their genetic communities feature. And they are now able to assign um, individuals to quite distinct regions around the world. So if, you're, if you have Irish heritage, for example, they've got 100 regions within Ireland that they can assign you to. Right very very good accuracy and that's using a, a different method from these pie charts where they're looking at shared segments of, of dna um, and if they tell you that you belong to the say the county kerry community then it's you know the, the chances are that you will have some ancestors from county kerry how does that work exactly what do they do um so it's looking at um, genetic networks of related people. So they they just com- they compile these huge networks of people who've got connections, sharing, say, you know, a sizable chunk of DNA. And it may be that um, one person matches a number of people in that network, and then that person matches various other people in the network. And then once they've identified these networks, they then look at the family trees of the people in the network and try and identify, you know, if they've all got particular locations in common right so so they've got over a over a thousand of these um um, networks now so and it's revealing all these migratory patterns so you've got um like sort of scottish people in nova scotia and all the settler communities in australia and new zealand and various communities all across the um north america that part of the test is actually much more reliable than the high level percentages that people get which um, I think can um, often mislead people so at the broadly continental level the results are um, generally correspond with people's known ancestry so you know sort of African um, you can distinguish between say northern European and Mediterranean um, or sort of Asian Um, but once you start to get down to the country level on those they become less reliable though they are improving I think um, they're much right. than they used to be but also it depends on where you're from so if you're European you get much more granularity than if you're African or Asian um, so results for Africans in particular can be really really disappointing and I've seen for example someone from Ghana who ended up being assigned 85% Nigeria and when I looked at his results it turned out that they the company didn't have any uh, reference samples from uh, Ghana at all so 
right. can only be matched to the populations that are in the database. We've uh, we've had a couple conversations on this podcast about the the issues with lack of representation in genetic databases, and it it has implications in health, but also in in ancestry. Um, and I and it seems like it's a problem that's not getting it's not getting solved anytime soon. Although a lot of people are working on it, um, you know, it 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 continues to uh, lag, lag behind in in people of ethnicities or ancestries that are outside of continental Europe, basically. Yeah. Well, I think what what needs to be done is the research needs to be done in those countries. We don't want, you know, like people going into Africa and um, sampling DNA to help rich Americans or rich Brits who, who want to know how much African DNA they've got. It's, the research has to be done in those countries for the, the people who, who and you know dealing with their priorities, which are generally right. health research rather than ancestry testing. Right. One of the interesting. So you so you have quite a. I, th- I suspect you have quite a complicated schedule because you're a honorary research associate at University College London. Um, you're as, as you mentioned before, you're a member of the Guild of One Name Studies. You also run a, a very popular wiki um, and, and we're one of the founders of the wiki for the International Society of Genetic Genealogy. And you've also written a couple of books and, and one, one of the books, DNA and Social Networking, I think it'd be interesting to talk a little bit about because these are two forces if we think about direct-to-consumer genetic testing in 23andMe, um, Ancestry, and, and others was popularizing around the same time as some of the large-scale social networks. So how have you seen those those two forces come together, and, and what are people using genetics and social networking to do? Right. So, in fact, it's interesting that since I wrote that book, so much has changed and just in the last uh, 10 years. So some of the networks, social networks that I wrote about in the book just no longer exist or just aren't right. used anymore. So things like Google Plus has uh, been and gone, and Facebook has become ever more powerful. And we're finding that Facebook is actually a very useful tool for genealogical research um, and also for identifying people because what you tend to find is if you're trying to find living people you can usually find them on Facebook and if they're not on Facebook themselves they usually have family members on Facebook um, so right. quite often the family members will publish genealogical details they will you know talk about birthday parties or they'll be wishing other relatives happy birthday or talking about weddings so so I think a lot of people are publishing all sorts of um, facts about their family on Facebook, often not realizing that they're publishing on a, a publishing publicly, and that right. information is actually can be very useful, and um, sometimes for useful purposes, but also for more malign purposes as well. Yeah, I've um, I've witnessed there. I mean, there are dozens, probably hundreds, around the world of different groups of of people that are organized around connecting with family lost family members on Facebook or or using Facebook to do research. I've seen guides on how to if if you encounter someone on Facebook who you you think might be a relative based on surname, geography, etc. Different strategies around how to reach out to that person or engage in a way you know that's that isn't kind of strange or or out of the blue so it's it's a whole i mean for people who haven't been involved in this like like me it's a whole different kind of um you know subculture and approach and i, and I understand there's even uh you know there's conferences like roots tech that goes on in london where people um thousands of people come together and and discuss some of the new technologies and i think you've been involved in that before haven't you 
Uh, yes, we had a big Roots Tech conference in London um, in the autumn last year, but in fact, uh, the American version has just um, finished in Salt Lake City. Right. I think like 20,000 uh, family historians from around the world who've descended on Salt Lake City for that conference. Um, so uh, uh, these conferences are getting bigger and better every year, but uh, uh, in some ways, I think the Salt Lake City one is perhaps a little bit too big now for its own. <laughs> right. And I think one of the other interesting kind of trends alongside living people being DNA tested is is scientists are getting much better at sequencing ancient samples, right? So people that uh, that that are long dead, thousands, or in some cases, kind of several thousands of years old. Have have you seen this starting to also influence the way we understand? ancestry and migratory patterns? Uh, yes, well, that, I think that's been a really transformative area of population genetics because we finally have a way of directly testing hypotheses and it, it's really transformed our understanding of, 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 of our prehistory. Previously, the, the, the sort of prevailing theory was that humans didn't really move around very much. And now we've seen from all this ancient DNA that um, those migrations have just been... Um, constant really throughout human history and we've had all these amazing discoveries about neanderthal and denisovan introgression and ghost populations these populations that we know exist in in theory because we can see the traces in our dna but we don't actually have any um, ancient dna samples from those people right so one of the big big kind of stories of uh I mean, I, stories, if you're interested in this kind of stuff like I am, but of, of January, February this year was was everybody looking at the data and, and realizing that many of the direct consumer testing companies, 23andMe, AncestryDNA, sold a lot fewer new tests in the Christmas season than, than they were expecting. I was wondering if you have any thoughts on why this is. So it's been growing, growing, growing every year, and it's seeming like it's starting to not grow quite as quickly. Is it that the you know the early adopters in terms of health and and genetic genealogy and and other applications are starting to saturate or or is it concerns about data privacy and and i you know it'd be great to talk about some of the um you know the debates around how databases are being used in the us i'm just wondering if you have any any theories as as to why the purchase of these tests has started to slow down i think there are probably a number of factors involved i mean firstly we know that all new technologies, the growth pattern typically follows an S-curve where it's slow to start off with and you have a very steep rise as everyone starts to buy into the technology and then it starts to plateau. And I think certainly in the US market, uh, we are seeing that plateauing of sales, but um, we don't seem to be seeing the same slowdown outside the US from what I can mm-hmm. There's certainly I was at a conference in Belfast just a few weeks ago there's certainly a lot of interest there, and we, we're still seeing lots of growth in, in other countries as well. Um, but we're also a few years behind the curve anyway. So Ancestry, the biggest company, launched in the US in 2012, but it was three years later before it started to launch in other countries. Right. Um, but I do think that there are issues with um, privacy concerns, and I think there are two factors involved. And I think the law enforcement issues possibly do have some bearing on that. But I think also there is a lot of public support for law enforcement usage of these cases. And that, in in theory, could have actually um, encouraged more people to test who probably wouldn't have considered testing before. 
Um, but the other thing I think is the is various um, scares about companies selling off data, and that a lot of that's actually been driven by inaccurate reporting, uh, because the headlines always seem to say that you know the, the, all these companies are selling your data to pharmaceutical companies, but they're not explaining that in fact that's not what's happening. Um, people can choose whether or not they want want to opt in to participate in research, and then only if you consent your data can then be shared with um, the companies who are partners with, say, 23andMe or Ancestry. And in fact, a lot, uh, what, uh, what I think some people don't realise is that a lot of people do really want to share their data and they enjoy participating yes. in research and contributing to the greater good. And it's always presented in the media as though it's a really bad thing that companies have access to our data, but it's not at all. It's really interesting because what... What it seems to me that it matters to people is that the communication is clear and they have choices and, and they're able to transparently understand what's happening. And, and some companies do this really well and, and some really don't do a very good job of it. Because um, I, I think you're absolutely right that if you actually ask people ahead of time, most people do want to support research. They just want to make sure it's it's done in a way that they can understand what's happening and and you know and, and potentially share in the in the value in some way. Mm. One of the other concerns I think is probably with particularly in the US is when you've got an insurance-based healthcare system, yes. people are worried that it's going to that their genetic results are going to affect their insurance. Although you do have um, things like um, the GINA law in the US, which um, protects for, for most uh, cases. It's just, um, I think it's, is it disability insurance? and uh, Yeah, life insurance as life well, insurance, I think. Yes. So let's go more in detail, because I, I think you, you put it really well with the law enforcement issue that there there's, a I think, a very coherent argument for both sides, which, you know, if I, if I can give kind of my very, um, you know, basic kind of view on on what the debate is but you'll know more about this so you can kind of you know tell me where I'm wrong and and fill in the rest of the details but there are large databases that people have um you know willingly put their DNA data into for the purposes of matching with potential relatives or distant cousins um these databases in the last few years have started to be used by law enforcement um, in order to solve cold cases where they have the DNA of a murderer or a rapist. And, I, and the, the famous kind of case that, that kind of started this, this whole thing was the Golden State Killer that they used a, a genetic database to find a relative of, of, that, uh, of that person and then ultimately track them down using, I suppose, more kind of conventional policing techniques but the you know the 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 issue here is i suppose one of um slippery slopes right that many people can agree on using it uh for for things like the golden state state killer um but there's a whole kind of spectrum of crimes in between that and and you know something that that could be a human rights abuse that people are worried about oversight is that is that kind of the crux of the issue or are there other pieces of it that that i've missed um well i think that the Big crux of the issue is relating to consent. Yep. So when the news of the Golden State Killer case first broke, um, the the site that was used was GEDmatch, which is a third party website. So they don't actually sell tests, but if you've tested with one of the major testing companies, you can upload your data from, say, Ancestry DNA, and your cousin who's tested at Twenty Three and Me, they can upload their data, and you can compare your results. Now, at the time, um, GEDmatch had a, 
sort of rather ambiguous privacy policy, which didn't specifically um, disallow law enforcement usage, but it didn't explicitly state that that was what the database could be used for. Right. So there there was a, a reaction at the time that, you know, the, a lot of people felt that um, this is something that should only be done with consent. The terms and conditions of GEDmatch have changed a number of times um, in the last um, year or so. And first of all, they adopted the policy of trying to make sure everyone was aware that this is what the database is being used for to give people the option of opting out. And then in May last year, they decided um, they would start from scratch. They would opt everyone out. And then at that point, everyone would have to have to opt in specifically to participate right. in law enforcement matching. So the database went overnight from um, it was 1.3 million to zero. And at the moment, only about 200,000 people have opted back in again. Right, which is actually a, a big number in a sense. I mean, that means uh, in the rate at which we open and respond to emails today, one point, getting 1. 1.3, 200,000 out of 1.3 million people to do to do anything kind of does speak to those 200,000 people being motivated by this, right? Yes, that's right. But um, another difficulty is that there were a lot of people who, after the news of the Golden State Killer case broke, deliberately uploaded to help with these law enforcement cases. Right. Forgot about it. So um, um, any um, default options, they, they tend to be sticky. People just stick with whatever it was when they just signed up with the company. So it's much more difficult to motivate people to go back and change settings, whether you know, whichever way around it is. That seems like a good approach to me, the kind of opt-in, um, the, the opt-in approach. Is that, were there a lot of people calling for that um, there were, yes. Um, and I think that was the right thing to do. But then we also had the situation with Family Tree DNA, who went the other way round. And first of all, when um, they discovered the FBI were trying to use their database, they decided that they were going to allow it. Um, and that um, everyone, first of all, there was no opt out when they first announced this. And then they uh, there was a, an uproar about that. And then they were able to introduce an opt out within about um, six weeks or so. But now going forwards, um, well, first of all, they opted out all the um, EU users um, from March last year. But then going forwards, everyone is now opted in and they have to proactively opt out of law enforcement matching. Um, so that, again, is um, is controversial because, of course, there are people who perhaps have been in the database for a long time. Their email addresses don't work anymore they probably don't realise how their data is being used. Right. Um, the justification for that is that the, the rights of the victims should take precedence over the you know the rights of the individual because you do there are a hundred thousand unsolved cold cases in America, and um, so you've got huge numbers of families affected by these cases still waiting for uh, answers. But I would argue that um, that one of the, one of the things that has come to light because of these genetic genealogy cases is the shortcomings in the criminal justice system in America, because so many of these cases could have been solved if conventional testing had been done. Right. For example, there are two cases now where the the um, perpetrator identified um, had been executed um, in Texas. And DNA testing was mandated by the state at the time, but these prisoners were not tested. 
Um, there have been other cases where um, you know the um, the suspect had a long criminal history, but again, you know, even though the, the, the DNA should have been taken, it wasn't. Um, and you've also got all sorts of arguments about what, you know whether or not DNA should be taken upon arrest, for example. So in the right. UK, we routinely um, that the police have the power to take DNA upon arrest for any what's called recordable crime. So that could be something even like drink driving. But if you know, when the police have taken DNA from someone from drink driving, sometimes it's uncovered someone who's a serial rapist. Right. In America, it's much more controversial to take DNA upon arrest. Um, but then you now have a situation where you've got a whole country who are effectively connected by their third cousins to someone on JEDmatch. Um, so you've got this sort of vast network now that spreads out and, and ensnares ensnares an, an entire nation effectively. Right. Simon, I think there need to be more. There needs to be a more discussion and debate about the bigger issues involved. And then and the other thing that's a complete travesty is that the, there's huge numbers of um, sexual assault kits that haven't been tested. Um, there's huge numbers of convicted offenders who haven't had their DNA tested. Um, I just saw a report the other day, 30,000 convicted offenders in, in Washington state alone who um, that, that are legally required to submit DNA having com- committed an offence and are still not in the database. Um, so, I mean, you know, genetic genealogy has solved, you know, well over 100 cases but if you test 30,000 convicted offenders you would solve hundreds and hundreds of cold cases right and I, I just find it um, incomprehensible that there's not a public um, outrage at this um, complete failure to tackle these um, huge backlogs right so we're sort of debating the the wrong thing to some extent so, right yeah yep. yeah that's interesting I've, ne- I've never heard that before and it makes complete sense mm-hmm. uh, especially given um, the, the, I mean, there's myriad issues with genetic testing in the U S as well. The, there, as you're, as you're saying samples that haven't been tested, but there's also a ton of cases that the, the DNA testing was done incorrectly, or the expert witness really wasn't an, an expert and the wrong person ended up, um, in jail or, or put to death in some cases. Yeah. Yes, so doing the right testing at the right time can. I mean, there are so many people who've been falsely convicted and who who could be exonerated through DNA testing. And there have been cases where the the police won't even allow the testing to be done. And you know, even for people on death row, they won't allow the testing to be done. Do we know what the what the kind of policies or or past with companies like Ancestry DNA or Twenty Three and Me? They so. If Jedmatch had about 1.3 million people, my understanding is 23andMe and Ancestry have 10 times that, you know, in the in the U.S. So they could con- conceivably you could identify almost anyone in the U.S. Uh, by a third or second cousin from those databases. But my understanding is they have taken quite a firm stance that they won't allow law enforcement to use it. But I think they they can be compelled to in some cases if they have a warrant, right? Do do you know if there are any, um, you know, has there been any kind of definitive stance made by any of the the very large companies? Right. So both Twenty Three and Me and Ancestry have said that they would fight any um, warrants or try and limit the um, the, the jurisdiction. Um, both companies publish transparency reports where they publish information about requests for law enforcement access. 
Um, 23 Me has a database of 10 million. Ancestry have a database of 16 million. 23 Me have not received any requests for access to their database for um, genetic genealogy searches. Ancestry had one request last year, um, or in fact, it may have been earlier this year, which they resisted successfully um, on grounds of um, it was an overreach of jurisdiction. Um, to be honest, I cannot see how um, a broad request, broad search warrant could succeed because you're not asking what um, if you want to upload DNA from a crime scene, you're not trying. You haven't got evidence that the criminal is in the database, the database. you're looking for their relatives. Um, and normally, if you have a search warrant, you're, you're you know, it would be to get someone, say, credit card information or because you think your criminal is, is actually in the database. So it would be right. unusual use of a search warrant to to ask for um, such broad access. And also all the databases are international. So it, it to me, it would seem unreasonable for, say, a judge in America to grant access to a, an international database, um, you know, giving access to people in all, all sorts of different countries to solve a a, a local crime in one particular U.S. state. Uh, there Absolutely. Was a warrant for GEDmatch, but um, that turned out to be not a broad search warrant. It was um, one that was submitted just after the database changed and the opt-out was in, the opt-in was introduced. So the detective had already had access to a number of matches and was effectively asking for a warrant to to get access to those matches again. Right. Do you know how different it is in the in the UK or, or other parts of Europe? Are are um, projects like the UK Biobank or other large or even direct to consumer testing companies? Uh, are is there any kind of any level of um, interest in using these kind of resources over in in this part of the world? For well, for law enforcement access, you mean? Yes, for law enforcement. Um, well. Things seem to work very differently in uh, Europe. There is a, a saying that um, Europe regulates and America innovates. Right. <laughs> what seems to happen is that in Europe, we want to sort of get all the regulations sorted out before going ahead and deciding on how to do things. So um, there are various pilot studies. Um, so there was one in Sweden where they, they just published recently um, where they did some next generation sequencing on a um, a, a crime victim, and that's led to um, an investigation going on in Croatia. The victim turned out to have been from Croatia, uh, but that study was published in a peer-reviewed journal. And I've been involved in a pilot study in the UK, which in fact has just come out in the last few days. Where um, rather than using crime scene samples, we were given ten individuals um, with anonymous identities. To see if we how many of those we could re-identify, and they were they were all um, individuals associated with the forensic science company Eurofins, and we were able to identify four out of ten of those uh, people, and that was just using GEDmatch at the time before the opt-out when it was about 1.3 million people. So that was actually a much higher success rate than I'd anticipated uh, in advance. Yes. So how did how did you do that? What um, you just had the DNA? Is that right? So we just we were given the Jeb Match IDs. They uploaded the profiles for us, and then it was just a question of using the matches, using clusters of uh, matches, and building out the family trees to try and work out the uh, identities. 
Um, so one was very easy because there was a mother and a, a father in, in the database. And we, we did that within just a couple of hours. Right. Matches were more distant. But once you start getting um, clusters of matches, um, so in, in one case, for example, there was a whole cluster in the she- in um, Shetland. Um, and, you know, the same ancestral couple came up in, in all of the trees. And then it's just a question of building the trees down and then finding an intersection between that cluster and then another um, cluster that also appears in, in the um, in the as you're doing the research, um, and you end up with so each person has their own mix of genetic relatives, and it gets to a point where only one one person or one person and their siblings could actually have contributed that particular um, pattern of genetic re- relatives to that uh, profile. And I know there are other approaches that use um, that actually use the Y chromosome to try to predict a last name. Did, did you use that as well, um, or is that kind of a, a completely separate approach? Well, we didn't have um, access to Y DNA, uh, but that um, I'm a bit wary about using uh, Y chromosome data on its own because, especially with the forensic samples, they only test a very small number of markers, which means that you could end up with matches with lots of different sur- surnames. Right just using the STRs, short tandem repeats, can also um, produce false leads. It's much better if you combine the STRs with the SNPs with um, Y-DNA data to get uh, better accuracy. But also you've got the risk of um, what we call non-paternity events. And there's a, a it's roughly one to two percent per gen- per generation. So even if you've correctly identified, you may have come up with a surname lead, it's quite possible that the person doesn't even have that surname anyway, even though it may have appeared somewhere in the distant past in their family tree. So on average, uh, about one to two percent of births, the the father is not who, um, who maybe the child suspects it is. Is that right? That's right. But then on top of that, you've also got, you know, like name changes, people get right. again, or, the, you know, say the father marries again, they adopt the stepfather's name. Um, and people change their names for all sorts of reasons. So you've never got any guarantee that um, it's going to be the same surname. And there have been cases where of when Y-DNA has been used on its own, it has led to false leads. And that happened in the Golden State Killer case, where they had a very... Um, I think they only had 12 markers and they targeted someone in a nursing home and tested him. Um, and I, I, they really should not have done that because it, it just wasn't um, it just wasn't a, a good lead at all. Yeah. And there have been a couple of um, kind of famous historical examples, right? Or I don't know if they're they're true or not, but there have been some whisperings about um, different uh, kind of question marks along different royal lineages and and those sorts of things as well right and and probably someday when we have um you know 10 times as many people in the population that have been tested we'll, we'll start to be able to piece together some of these uh things right uh yes well quite a lot of the royal um y chromosome lineages can be inferred anyway by testing other people but um there was, there was famously the case of richard iii um and when um the they did all the comparative Y chromosome testing. They had five descendants from the Duke of Somerset, I think it was, and um, four of those all matched each other, but the fifth one didn't. And right. When the, the Y chromosomes from all four of those men did not match the um, Y chromosome of Richard III, so that shows that there was some break in the, the 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 link between the surname and the line of descent. 
right in that royal family tree uh, but that is only what you would have expected after all that time anyway right right it's just uh, after that many generations it's um it's it's potentially uh, inevitable right yes that's right yes <laughs> I know we're um, we're kind of running up against time here. Before we finish off, I, I wanted to ask about you know I, some predictions for the future. And I know you've re- you've been part of uh, a, a number of different interesting research programs, but one of those is about um, donor anonymity in um, in gamete donation or sperm donation, uh, fathers, mothers, uh, sperm or egg donation, and that people are using direct consumer genetic testing to actually find information about their, their ancestors. And I, and I think this is a, a kind of unprecedented and, and, you know, interesting kind of new direction that this has taken. I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit more about that and maybe some other predictions for the future as, as we move into a world where, where most people will have a genetic test and, and could conceivably be part of large scale databases. Uh, right. So, well, the issue of donor anonymity, I think, is resolved and it's now fairly obvious that um, anyone um, donating sperm um, should, should not be guaranteed anonymity because it's, right. it can't be kept. Um, so, in fact, what that is leading to, first of all, anyone who um, is donor conceived, they can now um, they now have a good chance of discovering their donor origins. But it's also leading to a new approach to donor conception and in fact I'm attending a, um, a, a workshop in um, March this year in, in London where um, people are talking about their experiences of um, open donations so there's a group called Pride Angel for example where they actually encourage um, people to donate but actually to be part of the family so it becomes a, a new way of, of starting a family. So That's wonderful yeah involved in the family right from the start or the, at least the donor is known right from the start and I think that that is where the, this field is going to to move to but also there, there has to be much more openness about fertility treatment because it's it's there's always been this stigma about it and you see all these celebrities you know um, women having babies in their you know sort of late 40s um, but they're not revealing that they're using donor egg or, or donor sperm or whatever. And it makes it seem as though you know, it's just very easy to have a baby at any stage. Whereas, in fact, the research shows that, you, re- you know, if you want to have your first baby, you have to have it before 35. And if you leave it too late and if you want a second child, if you start at 35, it becomes much, much more difficult. Right. Um, there, there has to be. In fact, one of my colleagues at UCL is in, involved in a um, a campaign to... Um, increase education about fertility and increase awareness about fertility and the need for women if they want a family to start much younger because women can't have it or they can't have a career and then suddenly decide at 35 or 40 they want to have a family it's much much more difficult to do that so I think that's a bigger societal change that needs to be made where we we recognize this and perhaps change career structures so that um, because at the moment all careers are structured around you know, women having careers and, and having babies much later. Um, and in fact, one, um, I, I was speaking to a doctor a while back who, who works in a in the National Health Service in, in the fertility sector. And he was saying that in a ge- generation, he's seen a, a change in the consultants now coming in. They're having the baby first before wanting to then go on and have their career as a consultant because they've seen the experiences that their parents went through in the previous generation. 
Right. And, and I think um, it's going to continue to change, isn't it? That as new technologies come in, we'll you know, hopefully be able to uh, figure out a way to make it all work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, wonderful. I know if, um, if, if people want to keep in touch with you, you're on Twitter, you've got your name, Debbie Kennett, which is pretty good. That means you're probably yeah. pretty early to the, um, to the Twitter uh, to the Twitter phenomenon. And then they can also follow your blog, which is uh, cruise, C-R-U-W-Y-S.blogspot.com. Yep. Anywhere else that I should direct people, especially if they're interested in um, genetic genealogy or following your work? I would just direct them to the ISOG website and the ISOG wiki in particular, which is just ISOG.org. And uh, that will lead to the wiki. There's a link on there. Great. Well, wonderful. Thanks so much, Debbie. Really appreciate it. I I certainly learned a ton today. Okay. Thank you for inviting me on.